You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Uh, so my name is Josh, I'm one of the elders here at the church. I get the opportunity, along with Royce over here, to teach on Sundays, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's an amazing privilege to stand up here and and to be able to open up God's Word and, and us to, to dive in together. Uh, so today what we're going to be talking about is Sabbathing. Uh, the Sabbath is something that God had created back in the Old Testament, and it was a, a day of rest for His people. But before we can jump into that, uh, we need to, uh, let's be honest, and address some, some cultural idols that we all did deal with. I did some studying uh, this week, some research uh, on Americans' average uh, amount of hours that we work. Uh, when we're really not supposed to be working. Uh, and this is some of the stuff that I came up with as I, as I thought about uh, our tendency to overwork as, uh, as, as Americans. So this is a survey of, an, of employed email users, uh, people that use email at their workplace. Uh, 22% are expected to uh, respond to work emails when they're not, not at work. 50% check work emails on the weekends. 46% check work emails on sick days. And then 34% check uh, emails while on vacation, which is pretty telling. How about this? Average American work hours. The average American works 47 hours per week, uh, which obviously is seven more than is required of them, which it comes to be almost an entire day of work. So on average, we are all working six, or on average, we're working six days a week, which is pretty telling. Uh, And I didn't know this, these statistics here. Uh, At least 134 countries have laws setting the maximum length of, of the work week. The U.S. does not. Uh, in the U.S., 85.8% of males and 66.5% of females work more than 40 hours a week, like in that other statistic. And then uh, Americans work 137 more hours per year than the Japanese, 260 more hours per year than the British, and we're not surprised by the French. We work 499 <laughs> more hours than the French. Uh, how about this one? This was about a paid vacation time and, uh, and sick time. Uh, there's no federal law requiring paid sick days in the United States. Uh, the U.S. remains the only industrialized country in the world that has no legally mandated leave. Uh, in every country, including in every country included in the study, except Canada and Japan, uh, the U.S. averaged 13 um, uh, vacation days a year. Um, in the other countries, the average was 20 paid vacation days. In France and Finland, they get 30. They get an entire month off. Uh, and then check out this last one. American workers forfeited 169 million vacation days last year. Paid vacation days we just didn't take. Uh, so when you see those statistics, we realize that this is kind of a big cultural idol that a lot of us are, are struggling with. So then I said, well, we have this problem of overworking. What about resting? How good are we at resting? So this is how the average American, uh, the average worker, this is how their, their day is kind of broken down, if you guys can see it here. Uh, in, the, in the blue is your sleeping, 7.7 hours. Uh, in the green is your work and work-related activities. It's almost nine hours a day. And then everything else is kind of wrapped up, leisure, household activities, eating and drinking, caring for others, uh, and then just other, right? Now, if you take leisure, sports activity, uh, take like household activities and the other portion, you add those up, it averages out to about uh, five hours and five minutes of leisure time a day, okay? Look how the average American spends that leisure time. The blue section, two hours and 49 minutes of watching TV, right? So that's, that's a big, that's what we're doing with that extra time that we have when we're supposed to be resting. There's some socializing in there on Facebook, a 38 minutes. There's a little bit of reading. There's participating in sports activities, 17 minutes. Playing games on your computer, 27 minutes. <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about. I play way more than 27 minutes. Um, <laughs> Uh, relaxing and thinking is 17 minutes, and then other activities is 18 minutes. And I wonder if that other activity would be something related to God, maybe, for the average person. You know, less than, less than 20 minutes a day, even considering God and who He is in our, in our relationship with Him. So I give you guys these statistics because I want you to realize how big of a deal, uh, how big of a problem this is culturally 
uh, for us. We obviously have a problem. We work too much, and, uh, and we don't know how to rest. And we don't know how to rest the way that God has designed us to rest. So I'm going to make a case uh, in our message today that um, us, n- us not being able to stop working, the fact that we overwork, the fact that we work on the weekends, the fact that we're supposed to be resting, we're actually working, I think that is a sign of something greater that is going on in our hearts centered around where we all find our self-worth. And I believe that our jobs for many of us are in competition for a place in our lives that only God should hold. And God has set up some regular routines for His people to help them deal with that idol of forgetting Him and of finding their identity in something else, and it's called a Sabbath. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. When God formed the nation of Israel many, many thousands of years ago, He told them multiple times throughout the Bible that He wanted them to take one day, and He didn't want them to do any work. Whatever that thing was that you do the other six days of the week for the average person, I don't want you to do that just one day, and instead I want you to focus on me. Like I said, this day was known as the Sabbath. When our passage today in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to be criticized for doing things on that one day that, he, that they thought he was not supposed to be doing, which is really interesting. So God commanded that you weren't supposed to work on this one day, yet Jesus comes along and he's working on that one day. So is Jesus being disobedient to himself? Is that, is that possible? How, how do we wrestle with that? What do, we, what do we do with it? It's going to be in Matthew Matthew 12. Well, in order to understand that question, and in order for us to be good stewards of the Scriptures, we're going to have to look at the bigger idea of what Sabbath is. From the Old Testament all the way up until past Jesus in the New Testament pointing toward the end of all things, this idea of Sabbath remains throughout all of God's story. So we know that it's really important for us to be able to know it. So I'm going to ask you guys to Try as hard as you can to stay engaged. We have a lot of scripture that we have to cover today because we're doing kind of a systematic approach to an idea. What does the whole Bible say about this one thing of Sabbath? So it's going to be a lot of scripture. I'll put as much up on the screen as I possibly can to try to keep us engaged with it. So as a church, we're walking through the book of Matthew, obviously. We're in Matthew chapter 12 here. Uh, Last week, we looked at a real heartfelt message at the end of chapter 11 where Jesus pleads with the Jewish people to stop trying to earn their favor before God, stop trying to prove themselves, stop overworking, and just find rest in Him. He said, I I will give you rest. My burden is easy. Uh, my, my, My yoke is light. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's going to continue that idea today by challenging their understanding of what Sabbath is. So I want to invite you guys to do that with me. We're going to stand up. We're going to read Matthew 12. Uh, We like to stand just in honor of God's Word. It helps us to focus our hearts. We believe that we stand under the authority of God's Word. And then we're going to walk through through this passage together. It's going to be up here on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible, that's uh, that's cool. You can check it out right here. So here we go, Matthew 12. Uh, At that time... Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there, and he entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they may accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more valuable is man than a sheep? 
So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored healthy like the other. Come on, computer, you can do it. I'm just going to keep going. But the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, unaware of this, I'm sorry, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and, and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then Matthew's going to quote out of, a, out of a, an, an Old Testament text here. Uh, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And his name, in his, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Okay? Let's pray together, and then we're going to unpack that because I know it's a lot. Uh, Father, we come before you. We just ask for wisdom. Uh, we want to be good stewards of your word, believing that you revealed yourself in a certain way at a certain time to a certain group of people, and we're not necessarily those people. And so we have to then go back and kind of get in their shoes. And so would you just give us the ability to do that, uh, to understand exactly what you're doing here and why you spoke and, and why you had Jesus say the things that he did in this text. And, and we want to learn, Father, uh, we want to learn more about you and about this thing that, that you started and uh, called the Sabbath rest. So would you do that for us today, Father, in your name, amen. You guys have a seat. Okay, so in order for us to understand this idea of Sabbath, like I said in the prayer, we have to understand how big of a deal this was to a, to a Jew. Now, in, uh, in Judaism, and particularly in first century Judaism, which is when our text takes place, uh, observing the Sabbath was one of three um, cultural priorities to, to a Jewish person. Uh, they gave them, it was basically like a badge of Jewish life. This is what it meant to be Jewish. And the three things were the dietary laws, which were the things that you eat and you did not eat. A lot of those are found in the, the books of, of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Uh, there was also um, the act of circumcision, which was done to a child when they were young. That was a sign of, of Jewish life. And the third one was observing this day called the Sabbath. Now, the first reference that we see of the Sabbath is found in the Ten Commandments, and it's sandwiched right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. So when you read the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, the first five commandments talk about our relationship with God. The last five commandments talk about people's relationship with one another. Well, the one in the middle is a transitional, so it talks a little bit bit about God, and it talks a little bit about us. But we need to look at it here in Exodus 20, 8 through 10. This is when God first introduces the Sabbath. So Exodus 20, 8 through 11, uh, in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters or your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner, the traveler who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay? So that's the first introduction that we have to Sabbath. Seems like a big deal to God, doesn't it? Right? So the word Sabbath is a Hebrew word. It's actually Shabbat. And the word means to stop. So to stop what you're doing. It sounds like something a parent would say to a kid. Shabbat! You know, like stop that. God wants you to stop whatever your regular work is. But it's not just about stopping what we're doing here. Look actually what he says at the very, very beginning. He says, I want you to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So remember, it's meant to be a weekly routine of this thing where you stop working. But why do we stop working here? It says that we stop working to make it holy. Okay, so I want you to take a break from your regular work, and I want you to make this one day holy. Well, how do we make a day holy? Holy means consecrated to God. We make it holy by us knowing more about God or growing in our affections for God on that day or for His purposes or for His will, right? That's how you make a day holy. Anything that you do to help further the glory of God for God means that it is therefore holy. Holy, so it's a holy day. I want you to remember to do this on a regular basis because it is, uh, it is holy. 
Now, there's this misconception in evangelicalism that Sabbath is just about physically resting. Like it's about me taking a nap on Sundays. I Sabbath every Sunday. Or, or I Sabbath when I watch football every Sunday because I'm sitting there and I'm just, I'm resting and I'm, I'm chilling out. That's not what this, that, I'm not sure that makes you more holy. It depends who you're watching, but, but I don't think it'll make you more holy. It, it, it's a, we have to wrap our mind around this idea. It's much more than just rest. It's about us becoming spiritually stronger and closer to God. Now, as we do that, as we become closer to God, there is a amount of physical rest that's involved in that. Because we find peace in who God is, we stop all of our busyness. Because if we have this idol of work and it's causing us to find all of our self-work, we do need to rest from that thing. And by doing that, I think we physically can slow down. We can stop the running around the busyness. You know, we live in this world of constant information and constant interaction. It's good just to slow down and and focus more on God and and think more about Him. So Jesus introduces, God introduces this thing to the people. Now, God doesn't exactly say how to do that in that text, does He? He just tells them that, that He wants them to Sabbath. He wants them to make a day holy. Well, the Jews who are very, you know, intuitive people. They really thought this thing through. They said, you know what? We need to come up with a list of things that cannot be done on the Sabbath. So they came up with a list of 39 prohibited activities on the Sabbath, and this is where it's found at. And I want to walk with you guys through those real quick. So this is us understanding the the Jewish context, right? This is why it's important. So here are the 39 activities that a Jewish person uh, was not allowed to do on the Sabbath. They are here. I may just have to read them to you guys. Okay, so here's the 39 things you have to, that, that they were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. They were not allowed, they were uh, uh, sowing, plowing, reaping, uh, binding. Uh, Jackie, you want to see if you can take over back there? There we go, because that's not working out. Uh, sowing, plowing, reaping. Binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing, stitching, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, tanning, scraping hide, making hides, cutting hides to shape, writing two or more letters, you can write one, erasing two or more letters, uh, building, demolishing, extinguishing a fire, kindling a fire, putting the finishing touches on an object, transporting an object between a private domain and a public domain. You couldn't take something out of your house or for a distance of four cubits within the public domain. If you were outside and you needed to move something, it couldn't be more than four cubits, right? Kind of crazy, huh? It's like they, were, they wanted to make sure they did not obey this. So they came up with all, all of these rules. Now let's go to the next one. These are things that were prohibited and were encouraged for the people to do on the Sabbath, acceptable Sabbath activities. Spending uh, Sabbath uh, together with one's immediate family, uh, you know, stopping your working, spending time with your family. Uh, temple attendance uh, for prayers was allowed. Visiting family and friends within walking distance, no traveling. Uh, you could host a guest. They encouraged hospitality. There were special songs that you could sing. Uh, there was reading and stuttering of the, of the Torah, uh, which is the first five books of the Bible and, and commentary. And then, uh, and then they had other books of, of learning, obviously, that, that were there. So this is what a Jewish person found acceptable. Now, if you did those things, that could actually be kind of tiring, couldn't it? Like, see, see the idea? Like, it's not just about resting. Even if you are a good student of doing these things, at the end of, a, of, of Sabbath, you could actually be kind of tired after participating in all of these activities, Okay. So the basic idea of Sabbath for the people is it was meant to lead them to love Yahweh more and love God more. It wasn't a lazy day. It wasn't a day off, but they were to worship, learn, study, care, and and, and strengthen one another, right? That's God's purpose in the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath has another purpose inside of it. That's one purpose. It's a, a one particularly for the people. It also had another purpose inside of it in that it was a sign of the covenant between God and his people. Now let's look at this. It's going to be in Exodus 31, verses 14 through 16. Here's what it says. Uh, you, shall keep, <clears throat> you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. 
Whoever does not work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does, not, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Whoa. All of a sudden, this thing became a really big deal, didn't it? Like this thing that seemed optional back in Exodus 20, God is commanding for people to be killed if they don't keep it. Well, what's going on here? Like, I don't, I don't understand. And then we're going to look at an example where Jesus doesn't keep it. So here's what we have to understand when reading the Bible. Let's pull up the chart here of, uh, of, of, all, the, of all the covenants. So when God first came, I know it's kind of small, when God first came and he he, he engaged with humanity. He created Adam and Eve. He, had a, he made a covenant with Adam and Eve. Now, a covenant is something that's really common throughout the, the biblical narrative, throughout the Bible. It's when, it's when two people make an agreement with one another. I'm going to do something, and you're going to do something. And typically, a covenant happened when, like, uh, a, a king took over another area, when he moved into an area. He made a covenant with the king that was there. He was the big king. He was the little king. And they had some rules where, you know, I'm going to make a covenant together and there's going to be blessings if you hold the covenant, meaning you're going to get the reap of the things that I have in my kingdom. We're going to share. But if you don't make the covenant, then there's a consequence for that and, uh, and you're going to suffer because of it. Well, when God comes and he does this with humanity, we see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's seven very clear times throughout the Old Testament and then pointing toward the New Testament where God does this with humanity, where he covenants with them. Every time God covenants with humanity, he has a sign, most of the times, he has a sign that, that, that marks that covenant. Now, sometimes that sign is a physical object that represents the covenant. It's to be a reminder. Uh, for me and my wife, this is the covenant sign. It's the gold ring that I wear on my hand. It's the reminder, you know? That's why we do this. We need these reminders. Well, in, the, in creation, the sign is the tree of life because it gives the people life. It gives Adam and Eve life. In, uh, in the redemption covenant, uh, the enmity between the seed and, and the noetic covenant, when, uh, when God starts the covenant over again after, after the earth is destroyed, the rainbow is a sign of the covenant. Uh, when he comes to Abraham, circumcision is a sign of the covenant. And when God comes to Moses and he gives him the law, the sign of the covenant is the Sabbath. It's this day. It marks that I am your God and you are my people. Now that is why it's such a big deal to God to not keep the Sabbath. Because it was a sign for everyone of this commitment that they had made to walk together in relationship. So to not Sabbath as a Jew was to give God the finger. It was saying, I don't want to have anything to do with you or your kingdom or your people. It was outright rebellion against Yahweh. And because of that, it had a very severe consequence for the people that chose not to do it. Now, we never see this killing of people over Sabbath exercised in the Bible, which is a really interesting concept. So God says this, yet we don't ever see it. And in a minute, we're going to look at a time where Jesus actually disobeys it. Uh, I want to give credit where credit is due. This is, uh, this is out of Michael Lawrence's book, Biblical Theology and the Life of the Church. I did not come up with that. Uh, so, no plagiarizing here. Uh, so this is why it's a, it's, it's, a big, it's a big deal to God. Now, we today live under a different covenant than those people did. We live under the new covenant. It's a grace covenant where Jesus came, and the, the blessing was forgiveness and eternal life. There's no curse. All we have to do is accept him. But our sign is baptism for the covenant. It marks that we're in the kingdom and that we're a part of God's family. This is why baptism is, is a really big deal. Just like Sabbathing was a really big deal in the Old Testament covenant, baptism's a really big deal today. So if you've never been baptized, I would love to talk to you about that because it's a covenantal sign that God's created. And then there's proof text for, for all of those, right? So very grateful that we live under the new covenant. It's a beautiful place to be. Uh, it's very different from being the Jew. This is why it's important for us to understand the Bible when we read it. Otherwise, it can be really, really, uh, really confusing. So that resource is out there. I would encourage you guys to do it. So in a minute, what we're going to do is we're going to jump back to our text. Now that we have a fuller picture of Sabbath, 
But before we do that, there's one other passage of Scripture I want you guys to look at. It's Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17. So now we jump forward about 70 years ahead of Jesus to the life of Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament. Now look at what Paul says about Sabbath. Paul says, he's talking to the, uh, uh, the church at Colossae. It's a group of people. There's division in the church because people are teaching all types of different things to the people. One guy gets up and teaches one thing. Another guy gets up and teaches another. And, and, and Paul brings the hammer. He's like, okay, let's clear this whole thing up. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or with regard to the festival, or to new moons, or to Sabbaths. These are all a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Whoa, all of a sudden, these three badges of Jewish life, no longer you can pass judgment on food and and drink, dietary laws, Sabbath? God said we're to kill each other if we, don't, if we don't participate in the Sabbath. How can Paul get up here and say you can't pass judgment? Doesn't that seem to contradict? Isn't the Bible contradicting itself here? Well, no, we have to read it in the light of these covenants. God, when he came and, and he, he made his first covenant with his people, with Adam and Eve, God knew that one day he was going to send Jesus Christ. God knew that he was going to make all these different covenants with his people throughout time. He, he, all of the Old Testament is meant to point toward the New Testament. It's a story. It's going somewhere. It's like, it's like watching The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. It's a story going somewhere, and you can't just like read it in the middle of the story and try to understand the whole story. You have to look at the whole story. So God comes to his people, and throughout his story— Throughout his narrative, he reveals himself to people, and it's a growing revelation, right? And Paul, in this passage of Scripture, is looking back on all the ways that God has covenanted. He's looking at those seven covenants that God came, and and he is calling them shadows. A shadow, you get the concept of it. It gives you a description of the thing that it represents, but it's not quite as good as the actual object that it represents. Right? So this is what Paul's doing. He's looking back on all of these things. He's looking back on the Old Testament law. He's looking back on the Sabbath. He's looking back on the dietary restrictions. And he's calling all of these shadows. Why? Because Jesus Christ has now come on the scene. He was the real object that all of these things were pointing toward. And when he comes on the scene... All of a sudden, there's no need to have a, a, a commanded day of Sabbath like what you see in the Old Testament because the Lord of the Sabbath is here. That's why Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath in this passage. So this is how we have to read the Bible. When we, when we read the Bible and we see a Sabbath day or we see uh, a, a day of rest in the Old Testament, it's pointing toward a day when people will truly find rest. And it's in a way where they don't have to do anything. It's not about them not going four cubits in order to make sure that they're resting. It's not about them not chopping down grain or them not building a fire. It's about them just receiving a free gift of God, right? The, the kings in the Old Testament are, are really not very good kings when you read the Old Testament Bible. Why? Because they're pointing toward a better king. That's why Jesus calls himself the, the king of kings. The priests in the Old Testament are pointing toward Jesus as the great high priest. The laws in the Old Testament are pointing toward Jesus as the fulfiller of the law. This is how God wrote, wrote the Bible. So it's the way that we have to read the Bible together. It's all pointing toward Jesus. Okay? So now that we understand that, we, I hope I, you guys understand what's going on here in the story. Now let's go back to our text and read it again with new eyes of the bigger picture of what God's doing. So here in our text, in Matthew 12, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field and they are taking off the heads of the grain and they are eating them. Right? This, they were not stealing grain. Uh, God had commanded in the Old Testament that when you planted a field, you were to harvest up to the edges of the field, but you weren't to harvest the outside of the field. Why? Because that was for the sojourner and that was for the poor to be able to provide for themselves. God designed 
a way for the most vulnerable to always be fed and be taken care of. That's one of the many ways that he does it in the Old Testament. It's a really interesting concept because we don't do that at all. We're like, I'm going to harvest right up to the edge and I'm going to use everything I can for myself. There's this idea of generosity that's really important to God. So the disciples are going through, they're picking the heads of grain and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, look at them and he says, Jesus, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the, on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus at this point could have made a really hard argument that God never said we couldn't pick grain on the Sabbath, right? He said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. He said, don't do your job, but he didn't say, don't feed yourself, right? This was them taking the law and adding a burden to it that wasn't supposed to be there. We talked about this last week as a church. So instead of Jesus arguing his point that he wasn't actually breaking the Sabbath, look at what he does in the text. He picks two Old Testament examples of really well-known people who were disobeying the Sabbath and were disobeying the law. Now, he chooses King David, and he chooses the priesthood. So he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? So what's going on there? Well, uh, Jesus here is referencing First uh, Samuel chapter 21. It's one of the books of narrative. It tells the story of the nation of Israel. And in the story, David, who is the, the God's chosen king over the Jewish people, David is on the run for his life because the current king does not want to give up his throne over the people. His name is Saul, and he's trying to kill David. And for about two years, David spends running from Saul, right? So in in 1 Samuel 21, David's on the run. This follows the scene where uh, Jonathan shoots the arrows to warn David that his father's still angry and he's going to kill him. And David and uh, Jonathan have to part ways. Uh, And it's a real emotional scene. It's really cool in 1 Samuel. Go back and read it. Well, David's on the run and David's hungry. So David goes to the temple, right? This was the the place in the Old Testament where the presence of God physically dwelt. And it was very important what went on in this temple and what didn't happen in this temple. Because if God was going to dwell with his people, it had to be done a certain way because they were sinful. And he really didn't want to kill them, right? But he was just. So he had to set up laws and rules inside of his temple. One of the rules was that you, that the priesthood was supposed to offer a bread offering to God on the Sabbath in the temple. So they, they bake six loaves of bread. It's called the bread of presence. If you go back and read it, uh, let me get it right. Leviticus 24, it talks about the bread of presence, four through, four through, uh, five through nine. And in, in Leviticus 24, the the, the, the People were to bake six loaves of bread. They were to give it to God as an offering. But then the priests were allowed to eat the bread afterwards, right? It was offered up to God. This is our, uh, the bread of presence. But the priests are allowed to eat it. So David's on the run. David's hungry. David knows where food is. He knows there's six loaves of bread in the temple with that priest. So David goes to this priest. His name is Ahimelech. And David says, hey, you got anything to eat? Right? It's really ironic when you, when, when you look at the scene. And actually what he asked for, he says, um, you wouldn't happen to have five loaves of bread, would you? He didn't want to take all of it. He wanted the priest to eat. But him and his men were hungry. Well, the interesting thing, David says, the reason I need the bread is because I'm on this really urgent mission from King Saul. And, uh, and I need the food uh, because we don't have time. And so they kind of dialogue about, well, have your men done some things that they weren't supposed to be doing? Uh, and he says, no. Well, then I guess it's okay for you to eat the bread, right? So what's going on here? The King David is lying for one thing. He's not on a mission from Saul to this priest, and he, and he takes the bread from him mischievously, and he eats it, which is a command that God said only the priest should do, yet they should be killed. And what happens to King David? Nothing. What do we do with that? Okay, it's God being inconsistent again. Okay, so then David goes, well, let me give you another example here. How about the priesthood? All of the priests, these guys that are of the tribe of Levi, that are ordained to go into the temple to offer up these sacrifices, a very specific group of people who can only offer the sacrifices a specific way, who have to be obedient to the law in every way because they're the ones who are physically closest to Yahweh. What about them? Have you not read how... 
In verse 5, in the law, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath that are guiltless. Every, sun, every Saturday, every Saturday was the Sabbath, and every Saturday the priests went into the temple and they offered this sacrifice. What were the priests doing that was wrong? Working. That's their job. And God said, on the sixth day, you are not to do what you do the other five days of the week. Yet the priests do it every single week. And nothing ever happens to them. Well, how is that possible? And look what Jesus says here. This is his culmination of this idea. Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Something greater is going on, greater than the law, greater than that holy day, greater than the priesthood, and greater than King David. The Messiah is here, right? Something greater, something bigger is going on. And he goes on, and he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guilty. Well, where is this coming from? This isn't the only time Jesus uses this phrase. Uh, Back in... August, when we left off of the book of Matthew, uh, we taught through the story where Matthew comes and uh, he meets Jesus. Jesus goes to his tax collecting booth and, and uh, he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and he follows Jesus. And they go to Matthew's house and they sit down and they have a meal together, don't they? With Matthew and all of his sinful buddies. They all come together and they sit down with Jesus and they're eating a meal together. And all the religious people are, are standing at the door and they're like, look at Jesus. He's eating with sinners. You know, he can't be the Messiah. Because he's hanging out with tax collectors. He's hanging out with all of those disobedient people who don't keep the law. They do those 39 things you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. I've seen them doing it, right? That, that's what's going on in, in Matthew. It's what's going on here. Well, that is a direct quote out of the book of Hosea. And in Hosea 6.6, 6, this is one of the Old Testament prophets. Now, you guys hang in with me. We're going somewhere, okay? In Hosea 6.6, 6, Hosea is talking about this future Messiah who's going to come, this king that's going to save us because, you know, over the last 2,000 years, these kings kind of sucked at what they did. And I would love to have a really good king come. And this is what Hosea says. He's, he's projecting forward about what God's going to do. And he says, I desire steadfast love and, sacri- and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's what God said. I want steadfast love and not sacrifice, right? Then Jesus comes on the scene here in Matthew 12, and he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Do you know what mercy translates being? Steadfast love. It's God's steadfast love for us, his people. That is what God has always wanted. Since he created Adam and Eve, he is, he's wanted nothing else than steadfast love. And you know the way that you receive steadfast love and the way that you give it is by receiving mercy from God. When you realize how much you've been given, then all of a sudden, you know what you do? You Sabbath. You rest. You stop working so much for one thing. And you just rest in God and who he is and his provision for his people. And that's what, that's what God has always wanted. He doesn't want our religious activities. He doesn't, he does, his, your worth in his eyes isn't because you're in this building or because you read your Bible or you give money or you try to do more good things in your life, more good things than you did bad things in your life. God could care less about those things. All he cares about is you and you finding your worth and your value and resting in him as your creator and as your king. This is what the whole Bible has been about. And you know the way that we actually found that? It wasn't through keeping the law. It's just a shadow. The way that we keep, uh, the way that we have this relationship, this steadfast love for God is realizing what he did for us through Jesus Christ by dying on the cross. And Matthew is realizing all of this. Like, you got to put yourself in Matthew's shoes. Matthew's like, this is awesome. Like, this is all coming true, these things that we've been talking about for such a long time. Matthew, at some point, he sat down and he started writing out all of these memories of Jesus. He's recording his gospel, just like the four other gospel writers did. And Matthew, in the midst of this, is just saying, oh, I remember when Jesus said this. I remember when Jesus said this and when he did this. 
And then Matthew in this passage is going to go on and he's going to realize that what Jesus just did was the fulfillment of something that had been said a long time ago by, by the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to skip over the section 9 through 14 here. It's the story of the man being healed with the withered hand, but I kind of beat that horse really well. So you guys kind of, kind of get the point here, and I want to be a good steward of my time. But Jesus also heals somebody on the Sabbath, and he's criticized for doing that. And Jesus says, what? Would you not pull a sheep out of a pit if it fell on the Sabbath? Why would you not help somebody else? It was another example of how the people had missed the point of God, right? So then here's what Matthew does, and this is in conclusion here. Matthew realizes that that what Jesus is doing is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. And he talks about it here in in Matthew 18. I just want to read it, Matthew. Let's read it, Matthew 15 uh, through 21. So Jesus, aware of this, he withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So Matthew's going to quote Isaiah here for the most part. He's going to give it an updated twist by adding in some Gentile language, but it's a pretty, pretty close quote. You can go back and, um, and, uh, and read, it, read it for yourself. It's in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. It's known as the suffering servant section of the Bible. So this is what, what Matthew says. He's quoting Isaiah, uh, talking about Jesus. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, suffering servant in Isaiah, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, right? The shadow is no longer there. The real thing is here. Mercy has really come. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Those are the non-Jews. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, which he doesn't quarrel in this passage. He doesn't get in an argument with them. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He wasn't a corner preacher, right? He wasn't John the Baptist. But look how he describes Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So Isaiah is talking about this future Messiah who's going to come. And the way that he describes him is two really interesting analogies. He calls him a a, a gentle reed that will not break and a smoldering wick that can't be quenched. And both of those are supposed to give us as the reader imagery of someone who is gentle and unassuming. And man, is that ever a description of who Jesus is? When, When you look at how he interacts with his people, his gentleness, his lowliness. Well, the cool thing is Isaiah said that 500 years before Jesus ever came to the earth. And Jesus met that description exactly. Because Jesus was the hope of the world. It was God's plan from the very beginning. And that plan involved the people of God, His creation, resting in God. Okay? Let's wrap this whole thing up. Last text. Hebrews 4, 6-11. We're going to jump forward to the book of Hebrews here. Okay, you guys still with me? Still there? Okay. Hebrews 4, 6-11. In Hebrews 4, the author is making an argument that Jesus is better than the Old Testament, basically. Better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the law, better than King David. Jesus is awesome, right? That's the point of the book of Hebrews. So this is what he says in, in, in the book of Hebrews. And he's talking about how in the Old Testament, the people never found rest, right? They were never able to really Sabbath. They were never able to really have a holy day until, for the Lord. So in verse 6 here, he says, since, um, maybe, did I put verse 6 in there? Sabbath day. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. That's that rest, that Sabbath rest that God always wanted. The Jews failed to enter it. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words that he already quoted at the beginning of 4, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay? Exodus, God designs a day that the people are to not work to make it holy. Right? They are not able to do it. Instead, they take that day and they make it about a bunch of their activities. Look at all these things that I do or don't do, and God's going to love me because of it. That's the point of the Old Testament, that we can't get to God on our own, right? Jesus comes along and says, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You no longer need that day because, ta-da, like I'm here, the thing you've been waiting for this whole time. And what I desire is mercy and not all of your sacrifices. Well, Paul is looking back on that, and he, or the writer of Hebrews here is looking back on that, and, and Paul is saying, yeah, it was a shadow of things to come. There's something greater. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, the rest is finally here. We finally now have a Sabbath day where the people of God can rest in Jesus. We can enter that rest that's been talked about for thousands of years. Praise God. And then what do we do? We work too much, right? Because we're still struggling with the same thing the people in the Old Testament did, right? We are still trying to prove ourselves to God. And you're like, dude, there's nothing wrong with, you know, working an extra day. If you can't stop working, it shows that something else owns your heart. And if God designed this thing, and even though the Sabbath has passed away, even though we're no longer commanded to obey the Sabbath, I'm not going to kill you if you don't do it, right? That's good. We love the new covenant. It's awesome. But that doesn't mean that it was a bad idea. It doesn't mean that we still should not strive for rest as God's people. Now, I'm not going to get up here and tell you how to do that. I'm not going to say you should do this and you shouldn't do this. Well, I will do it in one way, actually. (laughs) Now that I think about it, disclaimer, you know what we're doing right now in this room? We're Sabbathing, right? Because this is a day consecrated by God. It's holy. Now, is this particular day holy? No, but to gather together corporately as God's people and sit under the authority of his word and to have someone publicly speak like this is God's design for his way that he revealed himself to his people. And we try to be good stewards of that. This is really, really, really important to God. It was really important in the Old Testament. It was really important to Jesus. It was really important in the New Testament. Now, they changed the day from Saturday to Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's the reason that why for the last 2,000 years, we have committed ourselves to this. Right? This gives us a whole other level for why we come here on Sundays and why we submit ourselves. Because this helps us enter into Sabbath rest. As our hearts are, 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 are moved in affection toward God, All of a sudden, we want to be here, and we want to do this thing, right? So I'm going to conclude here. It's like the third time I've said that. With just a a, a few points of application for us as a church, now that we understand what God's doing here with Sabbath rest, what do we do? We don't condemn people for not being a part of a a Sabbath. Um, I think Sunday's a great day to Sabbath, although it doesn't have to be the only day to Sabbath. But we're already doing this. Why not try to make this day holy to the Lord? How do we make this day holy to the Lord? I would say doing a lot of the same things they did in the Old Testament. Gathering together as friends and family. Sharing meals together. Studying the scriptures together. That's a great way. But it's not the only way to Sabbath. Going out on hikes in nature is a beautiful way to Sabbath. Before God, remember his creation and and all that he is. That's a great way way for us to Sabbath. But let's start being intentional with the time and just don't work. Turn off the phone, turn off the email, turn off the TV, which we're spending almost three hours of our leisure time watching, and let's Sabbath together. Parents, if we will model resting well for our kids, maybe they won't work 60 hours a week, right? We can do things now to set up healthy rhythms of rest inside of our families. And it's never too late to start this, right? At any moment, we can say, you know what? I'm going to make this a priority because it's a priority to God. So let's develop regular 
routines of Sabbath rest as God's people. So we're going to wrap up here with communion. And the reason that we do communion every week is because we need to remember. Just like the Jews needed to remember to rest every Sabbath, just like God had ordained regular routines, He ordained this, the coming, the the two signs that we have of our covenant, baptism and communion. So every week we come and we remind ourselves that, oh, God did it already, right? I come to this table with all of my anxieties and my workload and my family life and my finances, and I take that bread and I'm like, oh yeah, there's rest. You know, the penalty's been paid. I don't have to prove myself. God loves me because Jesus did something for me. That is a good reminder for us. And then we go back out and we let that influence our lives on a regular basis. So I don't invite you guys to do that. Come together, take communion. Uh, if you need prayer with someone, uh, Doug Fuller's right back here in the back of the room. Raise your hand, Doug, in his awesome plaid shirt. Doug would love to pray with you. He's our deacon over prayer. Uh, we want to get better at praying with you guys and setting up a routine of doing that. Doug's available to pray with anybody that wants to. Go and get your kids. Bring them back up here. We're going to have Tim come back up and we're going to worship together and take communion. So let's pray together and then let's, uh, let's Sabbath. Uh, Father, we come before you, and God, I just thank you for your plan uh, that you chose to reveal in your timing. And as I look back over the whole plan, we can actually see what you're doing. We can see why you set these things up so that we could mess them up (laughs) and realize that we couldn't keep them because there was something better that didn't require us doing anything except for receiving a free gift of salvation. God, thank you for that free gift of Jesus Christ. Father, would that lead us to resting in a, in a day and an age where we are so busy, Father. We need you and we need to rest in you. Would you help us lay down those idols that we run to for worth and for satisfaction? Help us lay down our jobs. Help us lay down anything else that stands in our way of you and find that the true rest is with you. God, I just want to tell you that I look forward to the day, and we look forward to the day as your people, when all we will do is rest and bask in your glory. You have decided that this was what we'll do for eternity. God, please give us the ability to do it now. That we don't have to wait till then to do it, but we can rest now and find our identity in you, Father. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your plan, how you revealed yourself, and for what you're doing. You're amazing, God. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.